0: Open it up to Romans, chapter 12, verse 13. And if you're able, please stand as you turn there, as I'm going to read God's Word for us this morning. Romans, chapter 12, verse 13. If you have one of the black hardcover Bibles, that's page 948. We stand as a way to honor God who's speaking to us through His Word. Romans chapter 12 verse 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's God's word. You may be seated. And let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that we have the opportunity to gather here today. We thank you for the encouragement that happens as we sing and as we interact with one another as we open up our hearts to hear your word. God, we thank you that this is happening across the city and across the state in Redemption and in many other uh, congregations and churches and church plants. And today especially, we pray uh, for our brothers and sisters in Tucson. We're excited about the service that they're in the middle of right now. God, we pray that even right this second, you would be touching and changing people's lives with the good news of Jesus Christ. Give Dave and his team there encouragement as they lead and would much fruit come out of that local congregation. And then, Father, we pray for us now, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and open hearts that are receptive to this word, especially this verse, which is so challenging. And so, God, help us with that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in uh, the 360s A.D., uh, the Roman Empire had a, uh, an emperor named Julian the Apostate. That wasn't his actual name, but that's what people called him. Uh, his real name was Julian, but they called him Julian the Apostate. And the reason was a few decades earlier, uh, Constantine had become the first Christian emperor in the Roman Empire. And uh, for the first time, persecution was minimized, and it was safe, and it was okay to be a Christian and to be a prominent person in Roman culture. That, that was a new thing. But Julian was very literally, not just, not figuratively, he was literally a pagan. He believed in a host of variety of gods, uh, much like Romans had for years and centuries. And he, when he became emperor, wanted to kind of Get rid of the Christian influence. He called, it, he called uh, Christians atheists. Isn't that funny? Like we think of atheists as people that go, I don't believe there's a God. What, what, the reason he called them atheists was because they were denying the kind of panoply of gods that all the Romans believed in. They didn't believe in that, and so he called them atheists. And he said, uh, it was interesting, w- when asked, like, what's going on? Why is it that this atheism, this Christianity seems to be gaining such a foothold The reason that that Julian thought was that the Christians were so good at love. He said, I'd like for Christianity to stop spreading. I'd like it to have less influence than it does. But I can't stop it because these people are so filled with love. And not just love for themselves and for the people in their community, but for people outside of them. Here's what Julian said, uh, kind of actually confronting his own people uh, that believe the way he did. He said this, For it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans, that's the Christians because Jesus was from Galilee, and the impious Galileans support not only their own poor but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. Teach those of the Hellenic faith to contribute to public service of this sort. You get what he's saying? He's saying the Christians, these rascally Christians, they're so good at loving each other and they love our poor and it makes us look bad because it exposes how little we actually take care of our own poor people. He says, so for those of Hellenic faith, those believing in these other gods, you know, we got to step it up here. We got to do more like what they're doing. And the reality is that the only thing that really gives you the resources to endure in this kind of love is the Christian faith. Because only in the Christian faith has God not just remained a theory up there in heaven that you have to work to, but God has come down. God has put on flesh and demonstrated love in himself, in his body and through his words, inhabiting our world and then dying on a cross to make it right. And when you're loved like that, then and only then do you maybe have the ability to love other people that same way. But that was the mark of the early church, genuine love. And it's the mark of every genuine believer. And that's what we've been looking at as we've been studying Romans chapter 12. At the beginning of Romans 12, Paul said that in view of all the mercy we've had, in view of all the ways that God has loved us, we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to Him. We, we pour out ourselves daily. We say, God, not my will, but Yours be done. Also, we have a renewed mind. We don't conform any longer to the way of the world, but we're transformed as we think differently. And one of the most radical ways that we think differently has to do with love. And so in Romans 12, 9, Paul said, Let love be genuine. Then he began to flesh out what that looks like. And actually, I think what Paul's doing here is Paul in this passage really is putting flesh on the skeleton of the great commandment. The great commandment is a kind of shorthand for the multiple times in the gospel stories when people came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, what's the most important command? I mean, there's all these commands. I read the Bible. There's all these different things of all these different Old Testament commands. Jesus, what's the most important? And every time he had the same answer. He said, the first commandment, the most important commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That means love God with everything. And the second is like it, he said. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you kind of go, oh, that's all? <laughs> like, love God with everything and then love everyone the way you would want to be loved? That's, that's challenging. That's a high bar. And so you maybe begin to go, well, what does that look like? I mean, put some flesh on that for me. Well, that's what the Apostle Paul's doing. So if, if the great commandment is the skeleton, Romans 12 here is the muscle and, and the, the, the nerves and the tendons, and it's helping sort of flesh out What does this look like? And we've seen that a genuine life of love looks like hating evil, holding fast to what's good, uh, being in close community, seeing the church as your family and being committed to them, showing honor to people, uh, being diligent, being zealous, being passionate for the Lord, serving him, seeing yourself as he's the master, you're the slave, having that kind of attitude and mindset. We've seen it's rejoicing and hope and being patient when things get tough, being constant in prayer. And then here in verse 13, we get, I think, at least for me, and, and, and maybe different for you, I think we get maybe the hardest part of this whole thing. And we all, the way we do it, isn't it? We, we kind of like to, well, let me look at, well, I'm good at that, I'm good at that, all right. I don't, if I'm good enough at these ones, I don't really need to do the other ones. That's kind of how we think of it. But Paul says, no, all of genuine love is this, and it all grows together. If we're going to love God with everything, if we're going to love our neighbors ourselves. it needs to include this too. So let me just warn you, this may be challenging for you. It is for me. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You're going to see a couple things about genuine love. The first thing is this, is that genuine love shares. Genuine love shares. That's what this word contribute means. It says contribute to the needs of the saints. This word contribute uh, is a Greek word that's related. Some of you have maybe heard or you've heard a ministry named or a song. You've, You've heard things called koinonia. Koinonia has the idea of fellowship and belonging and together and we're in it together and we have things in common. This word is similar to that. This word means to distribute, to impart, to share. So Paul is saying, distribute what you have for the needs of the saints, for the needs of Christians. That's what saints means. It doesn't mean just the exalted people who really did a good job at this. But here, this is meaning anyone who's a follower of Christ. Paul says, share with them. Impart what you have for their good. Share in their needs. Now, that's a total mindset shift, isn't it, from how we typically think? I mean, this really confronts a lot of how we think as individualistic, Western, consumeristic people. And we can rag on ourselves for being American. I don't know how much good there is in that. I'm American, okay? (laughs) Actually, I'm American, (laughs) right? But, and so this isn't a critique against being American, but here's what it is. Just be aware that the waters we swim in are intensely individualistic, And they're intensely consumeristic. And this challenges that. This this confronts that a little bit. This requires that we have a different mindset. This requires that we see ourselves, as Paul said earlier in this chapter, as a body where every part needs one another and we're totally connected. It requires seeing ourselves as family, which he also talked about in Romans 12.10. Love one another with brotherly affection. We're family. Do you see the church like that? Or do you see the church as a place where you individually can go and kind of partake of religious goods and services that feed you? Well, if it's the second one, that just shows you how influenced you've been by our culture of individualism and consumerism. But this says, no, we're a body. We're a family. We're in this together. When one of us hurts, we all hurt. Therefore, we share, we contribute to the needs of one another. It's a total mindset shift. We, we get together with all the lead pastors of all the Redemption congregations who are preaching on any given week, and, and we study this stuff together and talk about it together. It's really encouraging. And uh, Aaron Daly, who's the lead pastor at Redemption Alhambra, was talking about how his oldest son, I think is 11 or 12, came to him the other day and said, Dad, what would happen to, to my bro- me and my brothers and sisters if you and Mom died? Like, what are you thinking about that for? But <laughs> Okay. So, so, like, what would happen? Would we be homeless? Like, how would we have any money? What would we do? And he was pretty concerned about it. He was pretty overwhelmed by it. And Aaron said to him, say, hey, buddy, listen, we are part of a church family. We're loved. And if that happened, you'd be taken care of. People would bring you into their home. People would make sure you had everything you needed for school. People would feed you. People would take care of you. And your heart would be sad, we hope. But, but you'd be okay. Why was he able to say that? Because he has a church that sees itself as a family. Do you see it that way? Do you have that? If your kids came to you and said, what happens if you, you die? Do you have an answer like that? especially those of us that don't have family close by. Do you have family here? Our, one of our hopes, one of our prayers as a church is that we'd be able to over time create an environment where you could be in a, in a small group experience or serve with a group of people where it felt like family. If you start to experience some of this in the scripture and you go, man, this just doesn't sound like my experience and all your interaction is only here on Sunday, it can't happen just that way. It's gotta go. Beyond that, contribute to the needs of the saints. Notice it says needs. This means it's not just wants, it's not just anything you might desire to have, right? So, this is not saying, well, this person in my small group wants to go to Disneyland, so we got to pay for it. Somebody's saying, (laughs) right? A a need is not cable TV, and it's not lawn service, and it's not a smartphone, but it might be transportation get to work. Might be a place to live. Might be food. Might be love and care. Right? The the needs are not just physical needs. That's part of it. But they're also emotional needs. Someone to understand. Someone to listen. Someone to be there. Someone to support. They're spiritual needs. Someone to teach. Someone to instruct. Someone to help. Someone to pray. Right? That's all these needs, right? And it's not just wants. It's 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 needs. But let, let me just say, beware of stinginess. Right? Some of us, and this is my I just I'm sad to confess. They say confession is good for the soul. I don't know if it is to this many people, but <laughs> but my flinch is to go, oh good, it says needs. I'm off the hook. Because most people don't have a lot of needs, they just have wants. Right, I, I saw something that said the average family on welfare has a smartphone okay, I feel better. Well, that's me acting like the two-year-old in the family, not the adult, right? The adult, the parent in the family goes, I care about everyone in this family for sure with their needs, but I also care about their wants. The two-year-old goes, mine, I don't care, right? And so I just would challenge me, and I challenge us, beware of the stinginess that hears, okay, it's just needs, maybe it would be good to help encourage and to bless people even beyond what they need. And if our first flinch is no, and if our first flinch is, oh, I don't have to help, that reveals something about us. See, this is a radical teaching. I, you feel challenged by it? This is, this is a challenging, in-your-face, radical deal. And it's so radical to me that actually when you read the book of Acts, and it says in the book of Acts that they saw that they had all things in common with one another, and they would share, and they would give to each other as each had need, and sometimes they would even sell some stuff to be able to have enough money to contribute to the needs of the saints. Right? That's totally different than us. We're like, well, I just don't have any left over. I've spent it all. I can't help you. and <laughs> I'm definitely not going to sell something of value to help you. Right? They were so radical in their family mindset and in their community mindset and in their generosity to, to each other that if you read commentaries on the book of Acts, every one of them will ask the question, is, the, is Acts advocating communism? They will ask that as a question. And, and communists will often refer to that sort of thing. They go, see, they had it all in common, and they didn't see it as just them and just their private property. Right? You read the book of Acts, and you go, did the early church believe in communism? Now the rest of Scripture helps us see that no, they didn't. There is such thing as private property. Even in the Ten Commandments, the command not to steal assumes that you actually own something for yourself. So, so the Bible's not against private property at all. But it's just interesting to me that the church was so radical that people would look at it and go, maybe they're communists. Is there anybody that looks at the American church today and is like, maybe they're communists (laughs) because they're so committed to helping one another? I think commentators would look at the American church today and go, do they believe in love? I mean, we're not anywhere close to being accused of that on the whole. There's maybe all kinds of reasons for that. We may talk about that here. I think one is that this kind of thing requires intentionality. This kind of sharing, this kind of giving, requires intentionality. It requires some margin in your life, it requires some margin financially. Most of us don't have that. It requires margin time wise if you're going to be able to invest emotionally in the needs of people, it involves some margin spiritually. You're not always running on an empty tank, but you actually have some, a deep well to, to pull out and pray for and bless and encourage people. It requires some margin, and we don't have that. We, we run as fast as we can, as hard as we can, to consume as much as we can, to get as much as we can for us, and in the end, there's just no space. And we're so uh, unintentional about it that we end up going, well, I'm just going to do it spontaneously. Here's what I found. When I want to give or share with people spontaneously, I often end up keeping most of it spontaneously. Because there's always a reason why now's not the right time, or I'm just a little too busy, or this just isn't the space. There's always a reason for that. And so if you're not intentional with your money, and with your time, with your schedule, with your relationship with God, if you're not intentional about that, you're not going to be able to meet the needs of other people. You're going to be stuck. The other reason why I think this is hard is because this kind of sharing assumes relationship and proximity. This assumes that we're in such close community with one another that when the need is there, it's obvious, it's seen, it's clear. Again, whether it's a spiritual need or a physical need, whatever it is. But the reality is we don't live in that kind of proximity. We don't live in that kind of community. We don't live in that kind of relationship. We have to really work hard to force it. And even when we force it, it's really tough, and it sometimes feels like we're just playing. But that's the challenge of this. The other thing that, that makes it hard as it relates to that relationship, that proximity, is that we like to hide our needs. It makes us feel weak if we have needs. It makes us feel, I don't, I don't want people to help me. We have no problem helping them, but we're too proud to ask for help. So we hide it remember one time someone saying, just because the houses look pretty doesn't mean there's no needs. And that's true. There are needs. There are spiritual needs, physical needs, emotional needs, all kinds of needs around us and in this church family. And if we don't live in community, if we don't live in proximity, we're never going to be able to love like this. Now, here's what I want you to do. I've got, I've got, uh, it's it's going to end with homework, but we're going to give you some time in class to do it right now, Okay. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab a piece of paper and a pen, or I want you to actually, I'm never going to tell you to do this again, but get out your phone. If you take notes on your phone, get out your phone. And I want you to write down the names of three Christians in your life, preferably that are not part of your family. I assume you work to meet the needs of your family. That's a dangerous assumption. But think of people, three people outside of your family who are saints, they know the Lord, they, they love Him, they're in your life somehow, And I want you to pick one of them, and I want you to identify a need that they have that you could meet or that your family could meet or that your community could meet. All right, I don't see many of you doing this. I'm serious. We're doing this now. Okay, get it out. Get out the phone. Reach in your purse. Do it. I'm going to give you a second. I'm going to get off stage, actually, and get a drink because I'm sweating like a pig. All right, so I'm going to do that. And you uh, think of that one person and think, what's a need that I could meet? And again, it might not be money. It might be entirely something else. But I want you to write down something that you, your family, could do to help. All right? All right, class, how'd it go? Maybe you're still working on it. Maybe it's, maybe it's challenging. I don't know, maybe it, did it come easy, it hard? Just think for a minute. What if something like this became a regular part of your life? What if maybe once a week, maybe as you're kind of preparing for the week on a Sunday afternoon or evening, what if you just thought, who's one person that I could bless this week, that I could meet a need that they have? Maybe it's a need for prayer. Maybe it's a need for encouragement. Maybe it's a need for child care. Maybe it's a need for gas money. What's a need that I can meet? What if that question became a regular part of your life? Think about how that would infuse your prayers with a new kind of focus and energy. Think about how you would begin to grow in your love of God and others as you did that. The other thing I think about it is you'd probably get pretty overwhelmed pretty fast. Or even just think about those those few needs. Gosh, there's more needs in the world than I can meet. Which is why this is a command to the church as a whole. It's a command to the community as a whole. But also, here's what I'd encourage you. I I heard this from Andy Stanley once. He's a pastor. I, I love this saying. He said, Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Do for one what well, you wish you could do for everyone. You may look at all the needs and all this stuff and go, man, I can't do that. Okay, do for one what well, you wish you could do for everyone because genuine love shares. All right? Now, here's what's interesting. From here, uh, in the middle of verse 13, the Apostle Paul begins to kind of expand his focus, and we're going to see it actually expand a little bit more over the coming weeks uh, because up to this point, uh, he's, been, he's been talking about kind of this center This circle that's sort of closely around the Christian of the Christian church, the believers, right? All of the commands so far have been related to people within the body of Christ, within the family, okay? But in verse 13, at the end, he's going to extend that to strangers. And then in verse 14, he's going to extend it to enemies, right? So this is kind of a transitional thing. Up to this point, we've been talking about loving one another. And now we're going to move it out just a little bit. And talk not just about loving one another, but loving the next rung. That's what we see at the end of verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints. That's us. Then it goes out. And seek to show hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. It'll move to enemies, actually, in verse 14. But for now, we're talking about outsiders. We're talking about strangers. We're talking about a people that are not yet in the body of Christ. You may just say, these are our neighbors. And the word seek here is interesting. This word seek, it means to pursue and to move decisively toward. So this does not mean if an opportunity comes and presents itself and kind of smacks you upside the face to be hospitable, then do it. It says pursue it aggressively, move decisively toward it. In fact, here's what's so interesting. This is the exact same word, but it's translated in verse 14 as persecute. Right, look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. What he's saying is bless those who seek you. Bless those who pursue you, who move toward you decisively. Now in verse 13, he's talking about moving toward someone aggressively to bless them. In verse 14, he's talking about moving toward someone aggressively to hurt them. But it's the same word. And so it shows you the kind of focus, the kind of intensity here is that Christians are to be people like those early Christians that Julian critiqued, people who don't just look out for their own needs, but they also look out for the people outside of their tribe, outside of their camp, outside of their group. Seek, pursue hospitality. What's hospitality? And we think of hospitality as being you know, able to look at Pinterest and then recreate it in your house. So we think of as, as hospitality, or we think of it as, you know, having comfortable furniture, and making good food, and nice scented candles, and good lighting, and maybe a, a fire outside in the fall, and, and maybe misters in the summer, and just kind of creating, and that's part of it. That's part of hospitality. But what Paul has in mind here, this word hospitality means kindness to strangers, kindness to strangers. So it's wonderful to create a warm and a hospitable environment for fellow Christians. That's absolutely wonderful. That's part of how we love one another. But this command is aggressively pursue kindness to outsiders. Welcoming outsiders. Welcoming our neighbors. Now, if you're here as a, as a small child, you've heard, don't say, don't talk to strangers. Okay? And that's true. Don't talk to strangers, especially if they come up in a van and offer you candy. Say no and run away, all right? But for adults here, we're called to welcome, to pursue relationship with and kindness toward strangers, toward people we don't know. This should be fairly easy because most of the time we're around people we don't know. It's not like we live in some tiny little town where if some stranger kind of you know, galloped through town, you'd go, hey, that's someone, someone's new. Like, no, everybody's new to us. It's a great opportunity to express kindness to strangers, to say, we don't exist here just to kind of keep ourselves in this nice little bubble, but we exist to pursue relationship with and kindness toward and give the gospel, the good news, the ultimate kindness to people who don't know Christ. It's interesting, even as I think about this verse of of sharing with the needs of the saints and seeking to show hospitality, to me, for us, as I think about our future as a church, this is exactly the kind of reason why we are buying the land next door that we're buying, right? Ten and a half acres right next door. Uh, we're in the process of that. We're actually closing in the next couple weeks on that land, and some people have thought, well, why would you do that? I mean, you've got a nice, good space that you're in. It's going well. Everyone's kind of happy, mostly, and it's, it's fine. Like, why, why, why the money? Why the expense? Why the energy? Why the time? Why the focus? Why do that? because the Bible commands us to be hospitable to strangers. And I don't know if you know this, but there are thousands and thousands of strangers streaming into this part of the city all the time. And we have an incredible opportunity to set up a hospitable environment that welcomes them. That when you are out loving people and building relationships, we can say, hey, there's a church where you can come and there's room for you. We're bumping up against that even now. Are we got to think about, okay, we're going to need to add services at different points and things like that, and we'll do that stuff. But eventually, we'd like to have a long-term base camp home that we could welcome strangers to. And so if you're, if you're one of the people that's giving towards that Roots project, you're giving, and sometimes you look out at that dirt and you go, man, when I'm done making this commitment, it's still going to look like dirt. <laughs> Here, listen, you're not giving to dirt. You're giving to love. And love welcomes strangers. This is challenging. This is convicting. But this kind of hospitality commanded here in verse 13, seek to show hospitality, it's even worse if you look at what Jesus had to say about it. And when I say worse, what I mean is if you think this is hard, Jesus like just raised the bar and raised the bar and raised the bar even more. Check this out. Jesus was at a dinner party in Luke 14 And he gave some instructions about how we should think about hospitality. He said this in verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and and you be repaid. At which point the host is going, that didn't feel very nice. (laughs) You're critiquing my guest list. Anyway, verse 13. I guess when you're the son of God, you're allowed to do that, all right? But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now listen here. This is not Jesus giving hard and fast rules for who you can have over for dinner. This is not saying, hey, at your next Super Bowl party, make sure you don't know anyone. It's not what it's saying. But what it's saying is one of the ways we use hospitality is a little bit of this for that. You know, I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. And we like to have people over that might have us over. And, you know, we like to do that kind of thing. And Jesus is saying, no, the heart that I have is a heart that goes after people that can't repay. Jesus is the heart of the one who goes after the one who knows they're sick. He said, I didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick. I didn't come for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. I came to seek and save the lost. That's my heart, and that should be the church's heart. Jesus cranks up the heat even more in Matthew 25. He's describing the ultimate judgment when we're judged according to our deeds. And here's what it says in Matthew 25. It says, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So Jesus says part of how we will be judged is based on our welcoming of strangers, our pursuit of kindness to outsiders especially to the marginalized and the poor and the imprisoned and the helpless. And he doesn't just say, when you do it to them, it's like you do it to me. He says, no, when you do it to them, you're doing it for me. It's incredible. And how much time do you spend thinking about how to serve the poor and the marginalized and the needy? If you're like me, not a ton. It's convicting. It's convicting. Jesus cranks it up even more. In his Sermon on the Mount, he said this. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? He says, even the worst people in society do that. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, that's hard. No, it's not hard. It's impossible. Right, and if up to this point you've been going, gosh, I just, I feel overwhelmed with guilt. I feel overwhelmed with conviction. I feel overwhelmed with how fall short I, I find. You should. You probably should feel worse than you feel, actually, about it. Because Jesus' standard of perfection is so high, we couldn't do it. It's impossible. And yet here's, here's the amazing thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that Jesus takes selfish people like us, people that just think about our own comfort and our own security and our own interests. We don't really have a lot that we want to even do with God. Just kind of, hey, you know, you do your thing. I'll do my thing. We, we don't need him. We're okay. We're self-sufficient. He looks at people like that, and he pursues us. He moves toward us in kindness. He welcomes us in. And He gives us what we really need. Not just sharing in our needs, but covering our needs. Because what we really need is to be set free from our selfishness. To be set free from our idolatry of comfort and security and me. And we need to be set free from that. So that we can see with new eyes and love in new ways. And only Jesus makes that happen because Jesus comes in and he sees the need we're in. And he lives perfectly in a way that we can't. And he dies a death in our place. And then he rises from the dead victorious, showing us that there is a new life that can be found in him, where we aren't just bound in our sin and bound to ourselves, but we can live new in him. He gives us that ability. And if, I feel like the only way this is going to really happen for us is the degree to which we feel and sense how much Jesus has done this for us. And if that becomes real to us, then what happens is we go, you know what, I'm going to love God in response because he's my treasure, not my stuff. We begin to be able to love our families better because we go, hey, family, you know what, it's better, it's it's more blessed to give than receive. So we're going to be a family that's all about generosity and giving rather than taking and consuming. You begin to love your church. Because as brothers and sisters in Christ, you begin to look for and meet the needs that we have within the body. And you begin to love your neighbor. And that happens as you realize that you've been loved like that. You've been loved with this never stopping, always welcoming you in kind of love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for loving us like this and sending your son Jesus for us. God, we don't deserve it. We are the blind and the poor. We are those who can't repay you. God, I pray that we wouldn't even try, that we wouldn't even be tempted to feel like, well, maybe if we do enough good, it would repay you. God, help us to just recognize and see that uh, we couldn't repay you. We don't need to repay you. God, thank you for welcoming us like that. Help us to love one another. Help us to see the church as a family, as a body. And help us to love our neighbor as ourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.